0: We're preaching today through the Gospel of Mark, continuing this series. It's Palm Sunday today. It's a week before Easter. It's April Fool's Day. It's the perfect time to get into this scripture, to talk about this highly unusual entry that Jesus made into Jerusalem and talk about the event that makes us remember Palm Sunday 20 centuries later. So in preparation for this sermon, I realized that although we mark Palm Sunday on the Christian calendar, and in some churches we might even sing special songs or actually even wave palms, I don't know that I've ever actually heard many sermons from this text. And it made me think about the significance of this event. We mark it, we keep track of it, but it is kind of a strange story. We call it the triumphal entry of Jesus, as though it's um, like the coming out party of Jesus. So in that vein, Uh, Let me read you an excerpt of another, much more current, triumphal entry. Justin is hip-hop royalty. Justin's royal-themed bash is the talk of the town, and expectations are high for him to have the hottest party. To ensure this, Justin wants to make sure his party is at the most popular club in New York City. He wants to walk in with the hottest date and have the sickest performers to impress his friends. If everything goes perfectly, Justin is set to be crowned the Prince of New York. Now, you might be wondering, who is Justin? The answer is, Justin isn't anyone. He's just a 16-year-old boy who lives in New York City, and his parents are throwing him a party for turning 16. Only, it's being televised on M- MTV, an entire, an entire television show just designed to show off how awesome Justin is. And this television series has actually been airing for several years now, and it highlights the super sweet 16 moments of girls and boys who are being lavishly, lavishly over-the-top celebrated with music, cars, dancing, celebration, all designed to show off how great they are. Now you might say, that is absolutely absurd. But really, the concept has been around for a long time. It might not be It might not always have been on TV, Um, it might not always have been quite so over-the-top, but the idea of a coming-out party has been around for hundreds of years. Typically, it would happen when a young woman came of age. There would be a celebration, again, with music, dancing, refreshments, and this young debutante would come um, and be introduced to society. Now you're wondering, this really must be April Fool's Day if Matt's talking about this. (laughs) But the idea of the party is to show off all the positive, amazing qualities of the person who's being welcomed or introduced into society and show off their uniqueness in like a special way. And we keep using that phrase in a variety of ways, even though that type of party has, for the most part, gone out of fashion. So uh, another example would be in March 2007, uh, right before the Major League Baseball season started, the uh, conventional wisdom was that the Red Sox rookie second baseman Dustin Pedroia was going to be the weakest hitter on the team. Uh, the idea at that point was that the Red Sox had plenty of good hitters and they just needed this little guy to field ground balls and for the rest of the thing, everything else, he would just need to basically get out of the way. Instead, Pedroya became a Red Sox superstar in 2017. He had one of the highest batting averages on the team. He won the Rookie of the Year award. And the media said that 2007 was his coming out party. That was the year when fans realized he could do more than field ground balls. He could hit, he could run, he could throw, he could grow that little three-day beard. Like, he could do all those different things. And by the end of 07, we realized this guy is actually one of the best players in Major League Baseball. So I want you to keep that in mind, when this idea of a coming out party in mind. Because what we really have here in Mark chapter 11 is the coming out party of Jesus. Only, it's a very strange story. And it's inaugurating a very different kind of king. Let's read the scripture again. Mark 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David hosanna in the highest and he entered jerusalem and went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late he went out to bethany with the twelve so for the last year or so we've been preaching through this book of mark chapters 1 through 10 have covered several years in the life of jesus We've talked, we called the initial part of this series Jesus doing work, and in that time Jesus was doing all these actions. Um, we talked about Jesus healing, exercising demons, cleansing, forgiving, preaching, proclaiming. A lot of Mark is very fast tempo, almost like an action movie. Mark is by far the shortest of the four Gospels, and that's partly because of the tempo of the Gospel, where the author doesn't choose to provide a lot of detail mark 11 where we are today is a transition period the last 40 percent of the gospel after covering several years in the first 60 65 percent chapters 11 through 16 cover about a single week in the life of jesus mark is dramatically changing the pacing of this story jesus is drawing near to jerusalem near to the scene of his ultimate climactic destination You know that transition point in a movie when the music starts to slow down and swell up a little bit and you're moving towards a crescendo? That's where we are right now in this story as Jesus starts to draw near to Jerusalem. That's what verse 1 says. They were drawing near to Jerusalem. The Passover, the Jewish festival of atonement is coming up. And it was common for pilgrims, religious pilgrims, to make this trek To Jerusalem for the festivities Jesus and his disciples have actually been on the road for miles in the previous chapter mark keep keeps referencing the various stages that they are at in the journey they're getting ready for the journey they're walking they're coming through Jericho now they are finally at the beginning of chapter 11 getting close to the great city and Jesus has already told his disciples very explicitly What is going to await them in Jerusalem? So I'm going to back up a second to Mark chapter 10, 32 and 34. Jesus is telling them with exact detail what's going to happen. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, In his foreknowledge, Jesus knows with precise and gruesome detail what is awaiting him. And yet he's headed there. The text actually says that he is leading the way with his disciples. So Jesus and his disciples and everyone traveling with him in this throng of people headed towards the city, they're approaching Jerusalem, the center of Jewish worship. And as they get near Jerusalem, Jesus mobilizes a couple of his disciples and gives them very distinct instructions to go find him a colt. Now, when Jesus says colt, he is not talking about a young horse. He's talking about a young donkey. And he says, if anyone asks you what you're doing, in other words, if anyone says, why are you stealing this animal? Tell him the Lord has need of it. I want you to notice that title because we made a transition here, another transition in Mark. Jesus doesn't call himself Son of Man or some other cryptic title. You know how often in Mark Jesus has healed someone and then instructed them not to tell anyone? Or maybe a demon has shouted out his name and Jesus has told the demon to be silent. So often we've heard Jesus um, in this gospel tell people not to proclaim who he is yet, but now the time has come for his self-revelation. And Jesus says, tell them the Lord has need of it. The disciples go and find the donkey, and the situation is exactly the way Jesus described it. And they brought the animal to Jesus, and he sat on it. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus has been walking for miles. He could make it the rest of the way on foot. This animal is not going to speed up the process. If you want to get somewhere fast, you don't get a donkey. Donkeys are for the five-year-olds that are not big enough for the hayride, okay? You don't use the donkey to speed up your transportation. And if you want to make a good entry, you don't get on a donkey. You want, what do you want, a stallion? You want a real horse. You want a chariot. You want a symbol of authority. You want some type of power. It wasn't abnormal in this time period for a king or someone with political power to ride into town and be cheered on by the crowds. But he should be on a war horse. He should ride on something that symbolizes his power and his might and his greatness. You know that Spielberg movie that just came out, the animated one? It's called War Horse, not War Donkey. Like, Jesus is riding on a donkey. And it's the fulfillment of prophecy. Because hundreds of years ago in Zechariah, the prophet said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy hundreds of years ago said the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. The prophecy said that the coming king would be righteous And that he would bring about the people's salvation. And yet he would be humble, mounted on a donkey. And Jesus is revealing right now to the crowd with him, with a symbolism that they would understand perfectly. He is the coming king who will bring salvation. And when his companions see Jesus, they get it. They see, they recognize the the prophecy. They know Zechariah. And they start throwing their cloaks on the ground to show reverence. And they start waving branches to symbolize victory. And they're shouting and they're making a commotion. But again, I want to be clear. This, we call this scene a triumphal entry. This is not like some old Charlton Heston movie like, with, like Ben-Hur where they roll out the red carpet and there are like beautiful women in togas and a guy's coming through on a big horse and chariots and they're blowing fanfares and stuff. This is not a conquering hero. This isn't like when Justin walks into the hottest club or when the young girl descends down the spiral staircase to the adoring crowd or when the star athlete steps up to the podium to receive his award. There's no band here, okay? There are no beautiful women. There aren't any flashing cameras. The way Mark describes it, this is like a homemade parade. This isn't how you make a great entrance. He's humble. He's humble. He's sitting on a donkey, on an animal meant for work. And we're not even in Jerusalem yet. We're still on the outskirts of the town with all the dirty, dusty Galilean peasants that are making their pilgrimage with Jesus. This is a different kind of king. This is a different kind of authority. He's inaugurating a different kind of kingdom. This is an entrance that shows off the humility of Jesus not his power and I want us to stay here for a second and really see the meekness and the majesty together of the king who sits on a donkey he should have been sitting on the best horse in the country this parade should have been planned for months the great theologian Jonathan Edwards wrote about the uh, simultaneous meekness and majesty of Christ And he said in a way that I want to quote because it's in a way that only the Puritans can say it. He said, There is in Jesus Christ a conjunction of such really diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incompatible. There is in Jesus Christ a conjunction of such diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incompatible. Here we have the king with all authority who is coming to inaugurate salvation on the cosmic scale. He's riding in on a child's animal. And the text says that those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. For a long time, and you may be be like me, I thought that Hosanna was just a synonym of hallelujah. I thought it was just another way of saying, God, I praise you but Hosanna actually means something different. It means, God, save us. And we don't know, really, what salvation meant to those pilgrims on the road. They were probably thinking of deliverance from political and ethnic oppression. But what they are going to find as they shout out, God, save us, is that salvation is coming in the form of a humble servant king And it's coming on a scale that they are not even capable of comprehending. And I think that's us sometimes. We shout out, God, save us. And we don't even really know what we're asking. All we know is we need help. God is able to bring salvation on a level we're not even capable of comprehending. We've probably heard before this idea that that the same crowds who were shouting Hosanna and shouting praises to Jesus were actually ready to crucify him a week later. That's something we often comment about this passage. But that's actually a little bit misleading because as I said, these crowds are the pilgrims on the road. When Jesus actually enters Jerusalem, the scene is so understated, you barely even notice it. Verse 11 says, And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Notice that when Jesus finally enters the city, there's no fanfare at all. It seems like the commotion's already died down. There's no welcoming committee. There's no, like, royal greeting party. Jesus goes to the temple. And Mark, who never pauses for much, pauses and takes a break. And he says, Jesus looked around at everything. When I started studying this passage, I couldn't figure that out. What kind of comment is that to say that Jesus looked around at everything? Why does Mark think we need to know that? If there's one thing that the Jewish people were proud of, it was the temple. It was the center of their religious life. And here's the incredible irony that Mark's actually pointing out. When Jesus goes into the temple, nobody notices. It's like, it's almost like you get the impression that everything's just closed up for the day. He looked around, it was already late. And he looked around not with the curiosity of the tourist or the religious pilgrim, he looked around the temple as the sovereign Lord. Nobody here is shouting Hosanna nobody here is asking for salvation but in a week's time jesus is going to make the temple system of religious purification obsolete he himself is going to replace the sacrificial system by personally atoning for the sins of the world the cleansing and forgiveness that came through the temple is going to come through one man jesus christ This is where the coronation of the king should be happening. This is where the whole city should be gathered to celebrate the arrival of Jesus. But nobody's here. He shambled in on a donkey in the middle of a spontaneous ragtag parade with a bunch of shouting travelers. And when he finally shows up at the temple, Jesus looks around. It's already late. He gathers up his disciples and he heads back to Bethany not a triumphant entry at all it's a very undignified entry and it's an even worse after party so I want to want to kind of bring this home for us there's a warning here when we look at this to the religious establishment they love their religious system they love their temple they love their traditions and I don't think we're a whole lot different we love our dignity and we love our respectability We treasure that. We're educated. We're intelligent. We're respectable. We have a long list of attributes that are far above average. Okay? And that's great. But we need to look at this text and say, if our faith is more about dignity, more about social standing, more about tradition than it is about Jesus, then we need to repent. And we need to turn away from our fear of other people and we need to turn towards true worship of Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, then you should be shouting with the travelers on the road, God, save me. When Jesus comes again, and he will come again, he will not be riding on a donkey. He will be riding on a white horse, and he will be coming to judge the living and the dead. Jesus came to Jerusalem knowing full well what was before him. And he endured the indignity and the suffering because he was on a mission to fulfill the divine plan of salvation, to fulfill the mission that the Father had sent him on. If you don't know Jesus, then this should be your prayer. God, save me. And for the rest of us, If we know him, and if we love him, then I want you to pause and think about the Savior who let these Galilean travelers throw him such a ragtag parade. How great is his love, and how great is his condescension towards us that he entered our humanity and came into town on a mission of cosmic redemption, riding on a donkey, on a beast of burden. This is the kind of love that we respond to by living lives dedicated to his glory, to his service. This is the kind of love where we say, God, I want to honor you with humble service and gratitude. Jesus is a different kind of king inaugurating a different kind of kingdom. And his kingship, his service, gives us great hope. Let's pray together. Jesus, we acknowledge you as sovereign Lord, and we are amazed that we have found found hope in this story, that you came, that you lowered yourself into our condition and walked among us and got dirty on the road that we were traveling on and came to bring salvation to us. We ask that this text would cause us to find great affection towards you, that our lives would be lived in humble worship towards you, that no indignity would be too much as we serve you. We pray for this, that we would serve you in humble gratitude, whatever you call us to. We ask that we would celebrate the risen Lord this season. Thank you that you came and walked among us. Thank you for that humility. Amen.